From Advisory Board, we are bringing you a radio advisory. My name is Rachel Woods. You can call me Ray. Since the onset of the pandemic, we've seen a lot of attempts to compare this crisis to crises that have happened in the past. And many continue to use the 2008-2009 recession as a proxy for the challenges we face today and a means of predicting what will happen next. But at Advisory Board, we believe that the road to pandemic recovery will be very different from the path this industry took 12 years ago. To talk about why we need to throw out the recession playbook, I've brought strategy and COVID-19 experts, Yulon Egan and Christopher Kearns. Hey, Yulon. Hey, Christopher. Hi. Hi. Jinx. (laughs) It's been a minute since both of you have been on the podcast. I feel like the biggest question on everybody's mind is, have you gotten your vaccine? I have, actually. It was the first dose. I got it on Monday. So you're half-vaxxed. I am half-vaxxed, yes. I got my notice on Friday, and I took the earliest possible appointment that I could. How about you, Yulon? Not yet. I'm in California, and things are supposed to open up to 16 and over on the 15th. So I'll be sitting in front of my computer on midnight on the 14th, probably. (laughs) Like, I think, everybody else in in the state of California. (laughs) Exactly. If I reflect on some of the commentary in the media across the last 12 months, there's been a consistent comparison between the COVID-19 crisis and the 2008-2009 financial crisis, right? We even made that comparison early on in the pandemic. Why did we initially make that, that call, that comparison between the two? Well, on the surface, I think there are some pretty clear parallels, right? They were both crises that played out on a global stage and that had very clear economic fallout associated with them. And severe economic fallout. Yeah. I think there's also the fact that it happened within recent memory. So most of us remember it. And a lot of leaders across the industry sort of saw the impact that it had on healthcare firsthand. And if there was something that I kept hearing over and over again, it was a reminder of how long it took volumes to recover, how it Mm. took three years post-2008 for volumes to recover to their previous highs. And I think there was this relatively constant fear that that was going to happen again. And and now we've kind of come around in the opposite direction, where 12 plus months later, we've sort of realized that the two crises are different in, in almost every way which I actually think is is pretty surprising for folks, especially when we think about the economy. So what makes the economic fallout between the pandemic different than the global financial crisis? I think one of the clearest things we've seen is related to unemployment. So unemployment obviously skyrocketed at the beginning of the pandemic. In fact, we actually reached the highest rate of unemployment recorded since the federal government started recording those numbers in the 1940s. Wow. But that spike turned out to be kind of temporary in nature. So if we look at the latest data that we have as of February of this year, it's actually dropped back down to about 6.2%, which is a much, much faster recovery than we saw after the 0809 recession. How long did it take us to get back to a similar number in the financial crisis? I was just looking at these numbers. It took about five years. So, so five years versus one, basically. Yes. Yep. So unemployment 
fared better than expected because it was so temporary. But what else really set this crisis apart? Well, the economy in early 2020 wasn't just healthy. It was actually thriving, I think it's fair to say. And as a result, we've been seeing a better snapback from that. This recession wasn't caused by an overpriced asset bubble or excessive Mm -hmm. leverage. It wasn't a financial crisis that precipitated this. This was caused by government responses to a major health crisis. So when you're starting from a position of strength, you can understand how a number of different factors in the economy would snap back once a lot of those restrictions are lifted. And I think, you know, we've seen that concretely in a few ways. A lot of sectors of the U.S. economy actually proved to be surprisingly resilient, right? We've seen a pretty strong stock market. Mm-hmm. I've been house hunting. I can tell you that the housing market here in California has completely exploded. Same here in D.C. Even the retail market recovered more quickly than I think most were expecting as well down the back half of 2020. And all of that has meant that tax revenues didn't take quite as big a hit as they did after the last recession. So all of this should be really good news, especially to providers, because if I think about the effects of job loss specifically, it tends to come with financial insecurity, insurance loss, ultimately has a big impact on healthcare utilization, right? That's one of the big things that we saw in the last recession. So does that mean that we're sort of out of the woods when it comes to volumes? I wouldn't say that we're out of the woods, but I do think volume recovery is going to look very different this time around. So I wouldn't be shocked if we see a quicker rebound, but that rebound is also likely to be much more uneven. And I think financial insecurity is likely to play a smaller role, but there's still plenty of forces at play that are going to suppress volumes across the long term. I mean, there were a lot of volumes that were suppressed for a while. And as a result, you're working through a backlog right now. So for a lot of procedural cases, a lot of diagnostic cases, they are snapping back a lot faster than I think a lot of people would have even expected. But when we look at surveys of planners, for example, most don't expect ED volumes to get back to baseline, maybe ever. But let's talk about that those deferred volumes. I will admit I got this question just a couple of days ago from an organization whose volumes were trickling back up, getting closer to 2019 levels, and they wanted to know, could we actually see a volume boom if everybody comes flooding back into the health system? I think they, they actually kind of likened it to the roaring 20s, but for healthcare services, do you actually think something like that would happen? Potentially, but it's going to be time limited. When we look at the surveys of hospital and health system leaders, they generally expect that they'll be working through that backlog by August to November. And to your point, not everything is coming back. Procedural volumes is is one thing if you're working through the backlog, but if ED volumes are not coming back, that has implications on right future volumes. Right. It just means that providers are going to have to look to alternative sources to be able to get the right cases to come to them to get better referrals. They're going to have to use a variety of channels, not just their primary care physicians and specialists and EDs, but also using their virtual channels that they have built out over the last year. I also don't think we can assume that volumes are going to come back to the same players, right? I don't know that the distribution is going to look exactly the same Mm. as it would have pre-pandemic. And in particular, you know, those organizations that can actually really streamline their operating procedures and potentially extend hours to do surgeries on nights and weekends might be able to capture some market share in the short term because patients might be willing to switch providers if it means they can get something done quicker. 
Yeah, there are a lot of lingering fears around the hospital setting. So I think they could really position mm -hmm. freestanding providers such as ambulatory surgery centers that can attract patients that otherwise might historically have gone to the hospital setting. Hmm. We've been talking about the differences on the provider side, but I want to switch and talk about the differences among purchasers. If I think about the last recession, a big goal of purchasers was to look to healthcare as a source of savings as they think about their own recovery. Is that something that you're expecting to see this time around? The simple answer is no. And I think there are two purchaser groups that we've been looking at particularly closely, which are employers and Medicaid, both of whom we expect to take very different approaches this time around. Okay, so let's start with the employer side. Again, if I think to last time, a, a big source of cost savings that employers looked to was just to shift cost onto employees, right, in the form of high deductible health plans. But it's it's hard for me to believe that there's a lot more juice to squeeze there. Yeah, I think you're getting at something important, which is a lot of the efforts to cost shift have already happened. They've happened across the past decade. And increasingly, employers were looking to other options, such as patient steerage, for example, as a means of being able to achieve more savings. So I don't think we're likely to see more cost shifting in the form of more HDHPs, for example. I also think there is the fact that in 2020, because utilization was down across the board, at mm -hmm. least for the year, a lot of employers got the savings that they would want simply from lack of utilization. And last, I think you've got this issue of optics. During yeah. a pandemic, it's pretty bad to actually cut health benefits. So right now, we're not seeing a ton of employers that are looking to curb their health spending significantly, at least in the form of shifting costs to patients. I think the other important thing to remember as well is that HR leaders have a lot on their plates for this year, right? They're mm -hmm. trying to navigate bringing people back to the office, potentially maintaining a certain percentage of the workforce as remote or working from home. So there are a lot of big decisions that they need to work through this year, in addition to figuring out what they're going to do about health benefits. What about Medicaid, right? That was also a big target in the last recession. We had originally thought that we would see significant cuts to Medicaid pricing simply because of the collapse of state revenues and tax revenues that had been expected in 2020. Because people were staying home, because people right. weren't spending money. Exactly. And we're no longer saying that. Hmm. Yeah, I think our perspective changed when we saw that the tax, the hit to tax revenues had been smaller than we originally expected they would be. I will say there's going to be significant state-by-state -state variability here. So on average, I think the outlook for Medicaid looks a lot better than we originally expected it to. But I was just looking at the numbers. There were seven states that had revenues that declined by more than 10% last year. So mm -hmm. in those areas, you would expect Medicaid to potentially be a target. But if you were looking at it by and large, funding for Medicaid has stayed fairly stable. And not only do we have the improvement in state tax revenues, we also have the recent stimulus law that is designed to help preserve state budgets. So would you say that the Medicaid outlook on the whole is actually good? I would say that it's fairly stable. I don't know if I would use the word good. Yeah. I mean, I think state budgets are an evergreen <laughs> challenge. And so Medicaid is something that states look to on a continual basis to try to find savings. I don't know that the picture looks significantly worse than it did pre-pandemic. Yeah. And it's important to remember that unlike the federal government, right, most states 
have to balance their budgets, which is exactly why, to your point, they, they constantly end up looking at cutting provider rates. Exactly. We'll be right back with more radio advisory after this short break. COVID-19 vaccine updates are coming at us fast and furious. Let us help you focus on the most important headlines, make sense of them for your organization and patients, and maximize the success of your vaccine initiatives. Visit advisory.com slash COVID-19 for resources focused on your vaccine acceptance and administration and for other tools designed to support you in the ongoing battle against COVID-19. I want to come back to the first indicator of economic distress that people were looking at, and that was job loss. We talked about the fact that that was temporary, but if I think about the differences between now and the Great Recession, the reality is that today job loss doesn't mean insurance loss in the same way that it maybe would have 12 years ago. Exactly. There are a lot more options now. The Affordable Care Act provided more options in terms of Medicaid expansion in the states that expanded it, plus you have the Affordable Care Act exchanges that provide options for patients who might otherwise have gone uninsured. And we don't have hard numbers on this just yet, but we do know that the industries that tended to be impacted most by the pandemic were also not the industries that tended to provide health insurance to begin with, right? So retail service industries were those that were hard hit. People in those industries are less likely to rely on their employer for insurance. So I think the overall impact is going to be a lot smaller than what we saw 10 to 12 years ago. And what ultimately might that mean for the healthcare industry? Well, what we saw in the aftermath of the 08-09 recession is that the uninsured rate hit a new high, right? I don't think we're going to see that this time around. And in fact, it's possible, maybe not likely, but possible that the uninsured rate could actually hit a new low. We've also got an administration now that's investing very, very heavily in the public exchanges and Medicaid and really trying to expand Mm -hmm. coverage even further. I mean, in the recent stimulus law, we saw new incentives to get states that have been heretofore recalcitrant in expanding Medicaid to do so. Yeah, and made signing up for the exchanges easier and improved cost sharing for for folks that might be signing up for a plan on the public exchanges. So maybe it's interesting that the opposite effect might happen in this crisis compared to the last one in our lifetimes. It strikes me that perhaps the biggest difference between the two crises is that one was motivated by a financial calamity, right? This is exactly what you said earlier, Christopher. Uh, and the other was about healthcare, right? And about a health challenge. So as a result, we've actually seen more funding, right? Billions of dollars have actually been redirected into the healthcare industry, relief funding, like we've been talking about, but also in the form of new investments. What does that change actually mean this time around? We've been talking about non-traditional competitors for a long time, right? Organizations like big tech, the Amazons and Walmarts of the world, technology startups as well that are looking to get into the healthcare space. A lot of those players have actually done fairly well through this Mm -hmm. crisis. Amazon's probably the 
prime example of that, but startups as well. We've seen an unprecedented level of investment in digital health funding across the past 12 months. And it's a major shift in capital priorities. In fact, when we look at those same surveys I mentioned before of hospital and health system planners, they also are looking to shift their investment priorities into more digital health. It's probably the most significant shift in capital prioritization that we've seen since the mandating of EMRs in the original Stimulus Act in the early Obama years. Hmm. So I'm trying to think about the net impact of, of this year. Does that ultimately mean that the healthcare industry is just poised to get a lot more competitive? Not necessarily. It means, I think, that a lot of these non-traditional players have gotten a boost and they're definitely looking to increase their foothold in the healthcare market. But I also think we're poised to see quite a bit of consolidation within the healthcare industry mm. as well. That includes both traditional players like hospitals and health systems, but we're already starting to see it with a lot of these digital health companies as well. And that's probably because cost pressures haven't exactly gone away, even with an influx and, and boost in cash across the course of this pandemic. I mean, in fact, cost pressures are probably more intense than ever. I mean, the mm. biggest impact right now is on labor costs. So you've got a very traumatized workforce at this point in care delivery. Some of them are just going to drop out of the labor market, and that is going to create a much tighter labor market in the short term. We're already seeing upward pressure on wages, not only for physicians, but also for nurses and allied staff. I, th I think the labor pressure piece might actually be surprising to some folks, because if I think about healthcare jobs, they're typically thought of as recession-proof, right? Again, we're making comparisons between two crises, and the last time around, healthcare employment grew pretty steadily. Does that mean we're, we're not going to see that this time around? Well, I think we've got the challenge of burnout, right? You've got health workers who have been continually battling a crisis for the past year, and many of them are retiring early. Some of them are leaving the industry altogether, and it's left a lot of hospitals around the country with severe shortages of staff. And there's just this widening experience gap. Yes, there are yeah. lots of people right now who are applying to medical school as inspiration coming from the pandemic. But the reality is we're going to have a lot of new medical workers in the field in a few years, and they just don't have the experience of the people who are retiring en masse right now. And in the short term, that leads to a labor shortage, and that leads to increases in wages. Yeah, so this is another place where I think we're seeing things play out in the exact opposite way that they played out after the 08-09 recession. Retirements is a great example of that, right? Last time around, people were deferring their retirements. They were staying in the workforce longer. This time, we're seeing people retire early. And again, I think this, this might be surprising to folks who are seeing a lot of headlines about the Fauci effect, right? The the idea that even living through this crisis is actually pushing folks to apply to medical school and nursing school. But why is that not enough for this, this shortage problem and ultimately cost problem? Because it takes time. I mean, the reality is that a lot of organizations are going to be feeling this shortage right now, but it's going to take years for a lot of these young people to get the training that they need to enter the workforce. So in the meantime, we're going to see an industry that suddenly had to rely on technology when people were forced to stay at home, well, that technology is going to be relied upon again to be able to cope with the labor shortages that they're about to experience if they're not already experiencing them. I would also say that while medical school applications are important, 
Possibly the even bigger concern is the potential nursing shortage. And in particular, yeah. I'm starting to hear some organizations sound the alarm about the future of bedside nursing in particular. So how do we not only get the number of nurses that we need as an industry, but how do we encourage at least some of those nurses to work in the hospital setting and at the patient bedside? And to Christopher's point, make sure that they have the experience necessary to provide a a very you know specific type of care that comes with time and training and and not is not something that you're going to get you know immediately upon graduation. I mean, the good thing about labor shortages is that once they become known, they tend to be a bit self-correcting. But it's that interim period while they're self-correcting where the pain can really be felt. So staff is one shortage that providers want to protect against because of the immediate kind of concern, but also the accompanying cost problem. The other one that comes to mind for me is supplies. Absolutely. One of the effects of the pandemic is an increase in the amount of stockpiling that providers all over the country have engaged in with supplies moving away from keeping just enough supplies that are needed for a week and are going up to two months, for example. So that costs a lot of money and that pushes upward pressure on supply costs. It's definitely true that we hear from executives around the country that they want to push on their overall supply spending this year, especially given that pushing on labor savings is going to be really, really difficult. But the reality is pushing on supply savings is also going to be challenging given the stockpiling mandates that most of them have. I think there's a real tension here, right? On the one hand, if you can't get savings from labor, supplies are the natural place to look. On the other hand, there's upward pressure on cost into the supply chain as well because of this whole effort to pandemic-proof. I think the third option is to decrease capital spending. But when we talk to executives and when we survey them, most do not expect to decrease their overall capital expenditures it's just that I think a lot of them are reprioritizing them toward digital health and away from the traditional brick-and-mortar investments that they've made in the past. So, so none of this sounds good. <laughs> so what is, the net, what is the net outcome that you all are predicting here? Well, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing for providers to be investing in digital health. I actually think providing more investment in that sector that patients evidently have very much come to rely on is a good thing over the long term. But I think that the upshot is that for the provider industry, at least across this year, we're likely to see some pretty significant volume recovery in the most profitable volume areas, procedural volumes in particular. We're likely to see higher patient acuity, which may or may not be good for the providers, depending on the reimbursement they're getting for that. But given the upward pressures that we're seeing on cost, we would say net-net, we're likely to see some modest margin recovery across this year. It won't necessarily reflect the boost that they're seeing in volumes. I do worry, and I alluded to this a little bit earlier on, that this is a recipe for consolidation, right? Even with modest margin recovery, the hospital side of the industry in particular isn't in a great place, and they're going to need to find savings and economies of scale somewhere. We've been talking about the fact that the Great Recession isn't the right playbook. And there's all of these differences, in some cases, right, the opposite outcome this time than the last crisis that we lived through. So my, my question is, if the Great Recession isn't the right playbook, is there a playbook that this industry can point to as we move into recovery? The problem with looking at playbooks is that we just don't have these events on this scale happen all that often. I mean, the last major financial crisis that we had 
prior to 2008 was 1929. And the last major pandemic that we experienced at this scale was in 1918. And I think it's safe to say that the playbooks from 1918 and 1929 just have not been applicable in the 21st century. Right. So I don't think we're going to find the playbook. Well, then I, I do want to give you a moment to to speak directly to our audience. What are then the takeaways that you want leaders in healthcare to focus on and ultimately act on when they look to recovery? Well, the first is that they need to find economies of skill where they can, as Yulon mentioned, and it's going to be difficult to do so by finding savings in the labor and supply space, although there's always opportunities there, but it's just not going to be as easily manifested as we've seen in the past. So where does that leave us? It leaves us with trying to find economies of scale on the administrative side. So I think you're going to see a lot more potential investment in revenue cycle technologies in particular, I would say, trying to reduce the amount of spending on collecting revenue. That's one opportunity that I think we're going to see the industry start to pursue across this year. Elon, what about you? I would stress the importance of leaving enough room for burnout recovery. And doing that might actually mean making things worse in the short term. It might mean mm. that we take on some additional financial pain across this year. But I think it'll be really, really crucial for long-term recovery. If we don't get that piece right, I, I'd be very afraid about the future of this industry. And that really means embracing the innovations that we've seen across this past year, right? I mean, we've seen huge investments in digital health. We've seen huge investments in systemness. We have seen a lot of very good things come out of this pandemic, realistically speaking. And as a result, I think a lot of organizations are going to have to find a way to sustain those because the challenges that we have seen come up across this past year aren't going away right away. Yeah, I could not agree more. Well, Yulon, Christopher, thanks for coming on Radio Advisory. Always a pleasure. Thanks for having us. We'll be right back with what our research team is watching this week. Positive vaccine results continue to come in. Phase 3 trial has shown that Pfizer's vaccine is safe and effective in children ages 12 to 15. It prevents 100% of infections. On top of that, the CDC has been tracking the efficacy of the Pfizer and Moderna shots outside of the trial setting. This real-world evidence shows that they're 90% effective at preventing infections in adults. But this good news has been tempered with some concerning new COVID trends. COVID cases are up around the world and in many regions here in the United States. 33 states have reported a rise in cases, and that reflects a broader pattern we are seeing globally. Cases are spiking on virtually every continent. And this is especially daunting in light of a recent epidemiologist survey in which many believe that coronavirus mutations could make current vaccines ineffective in less than a year. It's a stark reminder of the importance of a strong international vaccination campaign, stamping out this virus before it's able to spread and mutate to such a dangerous extent. 
Late last week, President Biden revealed his $2 trillion infrastructure package, which includes billions in funding for healthcare-related measures. The proposal would allocate billions to upgrade VA facilities, improve air and water quality, increase national biopreparedness, and strive to establish 100% broadband coverage, among other sweeping initiatives. $400 billion would also go towards expanding access to Medicaid home and community-based care. Now, the administration faces the uphill battle of getting the bill past congressional Republicans, and even some Democrats, who think that the price tag is too high. And remember, as always, we're here to help. And this is especially daunting when you compare it to a recent epidemiol. What is this word? Epidemiol. <laughs> oh my god! Epidemiol. <laughs> Why can't I do the last half of it? I feel like I have a lollipop in my mouth for the lollogist. Epidemiol lollipops. Epidemiol lollipops. 